Really good question, Laura. This is something that we are also trying to figure out. But one thing we've noticed is that every meal counts. So this notion that you know I can have a cheat day or a cheat meal and it won't impact me, we're finding that doesn't always work because even a single meal can impact our cholesterol numbers. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. And we have a big old show on tap today. You guys sent in a ton of questions, and we're devoting this episode to getting you the answers. Dr. Vanita Raman from the Barnard Medical Center, she will be joining me momentarily with those answers, and answers to some really great questions too, including how just one meal can affect your cholesterol. Now, we're talking about cheat meals, cheat foods here, like French fries from the drive-thru or vegan ice cream, you know, things like that. How much fluctuation can they cause in cholesterol levels? And then we're also going to be getting into extra skin after weight loss and what's the best time of day to eat fruit? Is there even a best time? And we're also going to try to clear up some confusion recently about B12 and supplements among vegans. So a whole lot is on the show today. Those questions plus a ton of others that you guys have sent in. I'm telling you, the exam room listeners, you guys, yes, you are just a cut above. So thank you all very much for sending in those questions. But before we get some answers to them. I have a question for you. If processed meat is classified by the World Health Organization as being a class one carcinogen, why then isn't it included on the state of California's list of substances known to cause cancer? That very question is the basis of a lawsuit we filed against the state. The suit, in essence, would force California to add things like lunch meat and bacon to that list. And we're not trying to set precedent here, either. Known carcinogens are actually required by law to be on that list. So to talk more about that, we're going to be welcoming Mark Kennedy to the show. He's the vice president of legal affairs for the Physicians Committee, and he's been working on this lawsuit for some time. I'm telling you, he knows this inside and out, frontwards and backwards, and we're going to be bringing him on the show so he can share some insight with you in just a moment. But before we get to that, it's time to answer your questions as we open up the doctor's mailbag with Dr. Fanita Robin. Rolling right along here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. It is Dr. Mailbag Day. Your questions and a whole lot of answers from the expert. And the expert today is none other than Dr. Vanita Raman from upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chuck. You ready to take some questions? We're, yeah, we're going to talk. Let's do this. Yeah, a lot more than just weight loss. Uh, I asked for questions from listeners, and boy, did they, they just 
came back and, and they gave me dozens and dozens and dozens. So we're going to get to as many as we possibly can here. Um, and if you have a question, by the way, uh, for a future episode, go ahead and tweet me at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's also good for Instagram and uh, find me on Facebook. Shoot me a message there. However it is that you want to get in contact, just make sure that you use the hashtag exam room podcast. Send us your question and hopefully we can answer it on the air, just like these questions coming right up. The first one comes from Laura, sent this one in on Facebook. She says, I have a question. Do you know how stable our cholesterol numbers are? How much does one bad meal, say vegan ice cream or French fries, veer you off course? I always wonder how my numbers accurately depict my cholesterol level that it is normally just wondering how much there is in terms of a fluctuation. Yeah, so really good question, Laura. This is something that we are also trying to figure out. But one thing we've noticed is that every meal counts. So this notion that, you know, I can have a cheat day or a cheat meal and it won't impact me, we're finding that doesn't always work because even a single meal can impact our cholesterol numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, how long does that impact last? We We don't know exactly, but generally what we like to do is when people make dietary changes, uh, we like to wait at least six weeks before we repeat it. We think that's how long it takes to capture it accurately. Can a single meal impact it? Absolutely, it can. And the closer it's done to testing, the more likely it is to. But also long-term, it's really important to eat well, maintain a healthy cholesterol level because high cholesterol levels we know increase our risk for cardiovascular disease. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that I find fascinating, people always ask, well, how much does one meal impact me is, um, you know, Dr. Kaliova said on this show, geez, uh, a year and a half ago at this point, that she can basically tell what a person eats just by analyzing their blood. And then when I saw this actually in practice in the documentary, The Game Changers, mm-hmm. where they held that vial of blood up after somebody had eaten a plant-based meal That's versus right. somebody who had had, uh, I believe it was a pork or a beef burrito. And just the difference in the viscosity mm-hmm. was amazing to me, absolutely mind-blowing, and that was just one meal. Right. Yeah. So every meal matters. I like the way you said that. That should be a bumper sticker. Every meal (laughs) matters. That's awesome. Or at the very least, a t-shirt. All right. Next question. You ready? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Boy, what a name this one is. At Pop-Tart Daddy on Twitter. I love that. At Pop-Tart Daddy on Twitter writes, Is there any evidence showing that consuming egg whites reduces the benefits of an otherwise plant-based diet? Well, so let's look at it this way. You know, and this comes up a lot. Uh, People are aware that eggs are high in cholesterol and they're high in fat. And most of that fat and cholesterol is found in the yolk. So then that brings up the question, what about just consuming egg whites, which are mostly protein? Wouldn't that be healthy for us? And the answer to that is the egg whites may have protein, but they don't have any fiber. They also don't have many of the antioxidants and nutrients that we find in other plant-based foods. And most importantly, consuming egg whites will displace other more nutritious plant-based foods that we could be eating, like a cup of beans or a cup of vegetables. So if we fill up with egg whites, we're less likely to have room for that. You know, we have a limited number of calories we can consume in a given day, And we want to invest them wisely in Mm. foods that are the most nourishing. So egg whites may not have cholesterol and fat, but they don't have fiber and other nutrients either. 
Well said. All right. Next question. Uh, this one came in on Instagram. Interesting one. Uh, we talk a lot about supplements. That's a question that we get quite a bit, as a matter of fact, is what supplements should I be taking? So this one has to do specifically with DHA. Uh, I've heard talks and seen videos of doctors openly recommending DHA supplements as necessary with a vegan diet. Super necessary, as a matter of fact. What is your take? They argue that the human body is not good enough to make DHA through flax seeds, chia seeds, etc. Hence the need for supplements. Yeah, so let's let's break this down a little bit. We need certain fatty acids in our diet. Uh, the omega-3 fatty acid that's essential is called linolenic acid, and it's called essential because we cannot make it. We need to consume it in our diet. Then linolenic acid, in turn, is used to produce DHA and EPA by the body, which serve very important functions. Now, we can get linolenic acid from our food, such as nuts, seeds, and many vegetables. So we don't have to take supplements, and then our body can in turn produce EHA and... Uh, um, DHA? DHA yeah. and... Uh, sorry, I'm it's tripping over my alphabets there. <laughs> so there is... I think where the confusion comes in is that um, most of the studies with DHA supplements have not shown efficacy in terms of preventing chronic disease such as cardiovascular disease or dementia. However, some studies that were done showed that perhaps people who have low levels of DHA could benefit from taking supplements. It might improve their levels, and maybe it could improve um, certain clinical parameters. But they're limited, and we don't really know. The bulk of the evidence right now is that taking supplements has not shown to be effective in reducing chronic disease. So I would recommend, you know, trying to get um, our linolenic acid naturally through nuts, seeds, vegetables, all the things that we talk about eating on a regular basis. Right on. Uh, okay. Uh, next question has to do with glyphosate. Uh, hi, Chuck. I absolutely love the PCRM podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Is there any chance that glyphosate and wheats or oats might be discussed? I've seen and heard a lot of people talk about the research they've done on this and the danger it has in grain products. If you could talk a little bit about that, I would appreciate it. That is from Caroline on Instagram. Uh, what is glyphosate and what are the risks here? So glyphosate is the, the there it is glyphosate. <laughs> I'm sorry I butchered it. It's a, it's a tricky word. The alphabets are not intuitive in that one. But <laughs> glyphosate is a, the active ingredient in a commonly used uh, pesticide, um, and so it is ubiquitous. It's found in many crops, and. The World Health Organization has said that glyphosate is probably a carcinogen, meaning it can cause cancer. Mm -hmm. And the state of California has also issued um, some statements saying that it's likely a carcinogen. Uh, however, um, the EPA in the United States feels that the amount that's found in the crops is at a safe level. Now, that's highly debated because many people say that that's because the EPA has just adjusted the threshold for what they consider safe, but right. it's not actually safe. Right. Um, so the good news, well, the bad news is glyphosate is found in a lot of produce uh, or um, plant-based foods. But the the good news is when we buy organic 
we are not likely to get it. So most of the organic cereals or grains are free of glyphosate. So uh, if if that's an option for someone to go organic, I would recommend it. However, um, if it's not, then I believe certain websites can show which brands of cereals or food products have different levels of glyphosates, and then people can buy the ones that have the least toxicity from them. And along those same lines, I I think that it's also important that people realize you have said this and and your colleagues upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center have also said that if a person can't afford to purchase organic produce, that doesn't mean skip the produce. Right. It's more beneficial just to eat the conventional produce than to not have it at all. Yeah, and you know, that's such an important point, Chuck. So I and I'm so glad you brought that up because that's absolutely true. So if you can't afford to buy organic oats, that doesn't mean we should avoid oats. Um, and remember, substituting oats for something like eggs is not nutritious because that comes with another nutrient profile that's not healthy. Right. And all animal foods have other problems with them, um, like hormones yeah. that we deal with. Absolutely. Uh, Renee on Instagram writes in, my husband has severe unexplained infertility and even after adopting a plant-based diet almost three years ago, uh, his samples haven't improved in quality in the way that the rest of his health has. It's not something that any of our doctors have ever talked to us about or seem to think has any bearing on the issue. Thankfully, she writes, we were blessed with a baby in 2017 through IVF, but even throughout our five cycles diet during treatment, it was never mentioned. That is from Renee. So unexplained infertility on a plant-based diet. Any insight there? Uh, so is Renee following a plant-based diet? Is that Renee's what? husband is. Uh, Renee's so, husband. Renee's husband is, yeah. Yeah. You know what? So we know that when people consume a plant-based diet, their hormonal balance improves. Uh, so women experience improvements in polycystic ovary syndrome or infertility or endometriosis. And similarly, men experience improvements in erectile dysfunction. Now, um, some things we don't know. So we don't know what the particular situation is for Renee's partner or what's going on. And and it's possible that, you know, some things that can be corrected with plant-based eating may not be amenable to that. We just don't know what the particular situation is. So my suggestion for Renee would be for her and her partner to really work closely with a fertility specialist, either a urologist or reproductive endocrinologist, and see if they can sort it out. And and yes, she's absolutely right that most physicians will not be talking about diet mm-hmm. during any of this. And for two reasons. One, they may not know, and two, there's the science is still evolving, so we're still sorting through that. Yeah, and this, the nutrition science, uh, even Dr. Barnard will readily admit, you know, there's still many miles for us to travel mm-hmm. there. Um, I feel like in a lot of cases, we're just kind of beginning to scratch the surface. This may be one of those situations. Absolutely, um, yeah. I am really glad for them that uh, they were able to successfully conceive through IVF. That's phenomenal. Um, So I'm really happy for them. Um, So Renee, uh, hang in there. Uh, More research is needed, but uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to get you some answers soon. Uh, Next question comes to us from Antonio on Facebook. Says, hey, Chuck, I'm a fan of your podcast. As a seven-year vegan, I find it useful and so full of precious knowledge. Well, thank you, Antonio. That's very kind of you. Um, 
I'm also suggesting it to all of my family members who aren't plant-based since my father also has type 2 diabetes and won't listen to me. Hopefully hearing it from a doctor will change his mind. Uh, Okay, here's the question. I was also wondering if you did any episodes where you talk about the right moment to eat fruit during the day. I'm asking because I read a lot about the fact that sugars in fruit can slow down digestion of other foods if eaten right after or just before a meal. So when is the right time for fruit? Anytime. Aha! Good answer. There is never a wrong time to eat fruit. Fruits are... Uh, nature's perfect food. They're full of nutrients. They're naturally low in fat. They're full of water. They hydrate us. So, you know, there's never a bad time. Whenever you can eat, we try to encourage people to eat four to five servings of fruits a day. Right. So the nighttime is the right time for fruit. The daytime is the right time (laughs) for fruit. Anytime is the right time for fruit. I'm a fan of fruit. What's your favorite? Yeah. Oh, you know, right now I'm really into mangoes. They're just starting to come out, Mm. and they are not bad. I'm telling you. Yeah. I'm telling you. I love mangoes. Like, um, even get them frozen off season, and I just love to, you know, blend them up and just make like mango ice cream, basically. Yes. Yes. It's so good. So simple. So tasty. Um, Yeah. Mangoes all day, every day. Ah, here we go. This is awesome. This is uh, from a fellow weight loss success story. After switching to a whole food plant-based diet, I lost over 150 pounds. I've sustained the weight loss for over two years. Congratulations. That's awesome. Do you have any recommendations for dealing with loose skin? I've noticed it's shrinking, but slowly. Yeah. So talk to me from a clinician standpoint, and then I will talk to you from experience. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's amazing. And it's great that um, our listener has been able to keep it off, which is wonderful. You know, clinically speaking, loose skin is common after significant weight loss. And it's redundant skin that's been stretched out and now has trouble shrinking back all the way. And sometimes, especially like after bariatric surgery, people will then require... Um, you know, help from a plastic surgeon to bring things back to Mm. where it's more comfortable. So if it's not shrinking down, it might be worthwhile to have a visit with a plastic surgeon and see what the options are. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you that I've had the weight off now, uh, geez, about 10 years. Um, And so losing close to 300 pounds, there was a significant amount of extra skin. Uh, And I still have it. It's just conveniently kind of tucked away in my abdomen and kind of on my thighs, a little bit under my arms, but I try to do push-ups to to bulk these back up. The way that I look at the skin is it's kind of like a balloon, right? You blow it up, and yeah, you can let the air out, but it's never going to shrink down Mm -hmm. to what it was. So it's going to be there. And there are kind of a couple ways that you can look at it. You can take the route where it's frustrating to you, you hate it, you want to get it off, and it just drives you into this negative headspace. I don't recommend that, right? Because maybe you become self-conscious about it, right? I completely get that. But flip the script on that and think about that as a badge of honor. Would you rather have this extra skin or would you rather still be 150 pounds overweight knowing that you are – really unhealthy, headed toward an early grave, probably have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, at a high risk for diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, at all. For me personally, I will take the extra skin any day, any single day. So uh, hang in there, my friend. It's all good. It probably will not go away, but you know what? 
you should be daggone proud that you have it. You know, I'd just like to add one more thing to what you said, is that um, it's not medically necessary to have it repaired either. You know, it's it's more of, like you said, it's more of a personal thing. It may drive you crazy. So if you... If that's you're comfortable with that, then that's fine. Well, you want to talk some more about it. Why not? We never get to talk about extra skin. So here's the deal, right? <laughs> when I exercise, like if I decide to go for a run or hop on the treadmill, anything, like I have to wear an abdominal binder, mm. okay, because I have so much extra skin, it physically hurts when I run and I bounce around. You know, like uh, I... I'm not a woman, obviously, but I would assume that it's kind of like having a very large chest and then trying to exercise without any sort of support mm-hmm. up there. It hurts. And so it's it's flip-flopping around. And that, to me, gets really annoying at times. But again, it goes back to I would much rather be dealing with this than be dead because had I not made changes when I was 27 – I am pretty sure I would not have lived to see 30. I was in a bad, bad way. So give me the extra skin all day, every day. There are ways that you can just kind of deal with it and be proud with it. Um, And if I had the chance, Doc, you know, probably I I would have it removed. But I'm not in a hurry to do so, and it's all good. Yeah, and and any surgery has risks with it. Yeah. You have to consider that. Yep. Uh, okay, here we go. This is a pretty interesting question. Uh, this comes from Sarah on Facebook. She writes, hey, I absolutely love your podcast. Thanks, Sarah. My sister is 34 and has been diagnosed with many autoimmune diseases such as celiacs, fibromyalgia, Raynaud's, uh, and rheumatoid arthritis. I wonder if a diet change could help with all or any of these autoimmune issues. I heard your previous podcast on RA and celiacs, but if you could talk about the connection between multiple diagnoses and diet, that would be very helpful. Yeah, so, you know, really great question. This is one of those areas that is also evolving. We have increasing evidence with rheumatoid arthritis that plant-based diets can put people in remission or reverse the course. Um, We have some evidence with things like multiple sclerosis. We see that people with other autoimmune conditions like asthma or allergic rhinitis or inflammatory bowel disease also improve with plant-based eating. Um, But this is all right now again, early in the research process, and we need more trials and more firm data. But one thing I can say for our listener sister is that eating a plant-based diet will not harm her, and she can only benefit. So if you had the option of taking a drug that had no side effects that could potentially help you, you would try it. So why not try the diet? Yeah, I I agree. And Sarah, thank you for that question. There's somebody in my family who has been diagnosed with multiple autoimmune disorders as well. So uh, thank you uh, for asking that. That was a really, really good question. Uh, Next one comes all the way from Ireland. How about this? This is from uh, Emmer on Facebook. Uh, Love your show. Just listen to uh, the latest podcast. And I have a question on B12. Dr. Barnard advises taking a low dose, but others advise taking 2,500 micrograms per week. and they also reclam- uh, recommend taking a cyanocobalamin. Man, they, they mispronounced this word. Cyanocobalamin? Cob- co- cyanocobalamin. There we go. See, <laughs> you know, this is, this is where the reporter guy just stumbles and you're the doctor and you, and you know all the letters. Uh, anyway, um, what, what should we be taking? Should we be taking a higher dose? Should we be looking at a lower dose? What does the data show? Thanks, Emmer. So this is a really important vitamin. Vitamin B12 is an essential nutrient, meaning we cannot 
produce it and we need to consume it in our food. And this is one vitamin that everyone uh, who's following a plant-based diet should take because we cannot get it reliably from our food. And in fact, even people not following plant-based diets, such as those over the age of 50, should take it because they also have trouble absorbing it. And the reason this vitamin B12 is so important is that it's it plays a key role in our neurological function, so it can lead to cognitive impairment or nerve damage, and often that can be irreversible. Mm. So very important to prevent that. And the best uh, way to get it reliably is through a supplement. You know, things like fortified soy milk or almond milk may contain it, but unless we shake it properly and consume the right amount, we may not get enough. So let's talk about how much we need. We need very little, just six micrograms a day. That's Ooh. all we need. However, most uh, over-the-counter B12 supplements uh, will contain the smallest I've seen is 250 micrograms a day, mm -hmm. uh, a pill. So it's 100 times more than what we need. But the good news is whatever we don't need, we can excrete um, renally so it's not toxic. Right. And um, the other good news about it is we can measure our levels, and they're fairly accurate. So taking... And over-the-counter methylcobalamin or cyanocobalamin um, is recommended. There's some controversy about which one is better. Some people think cyanocobalamin is better absorbed, whereas others think it doesn't matter. So I usually tell people to go with cyanocobalamin because we know that works. Methyl probably works as well. But regardless of what you're taking, you can have your healthcare provider check a level, and it's fairly accurate, and then we can tell them if they're getting enough or not. So if you're getting a, a high-dose B12, um, you said 250 micrograms is the smallest you've seen. I doubt that I've seen any smaller, to be honest with yeah. you. Um, so it, would then you you take one every other day, every three days? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit tricky with B12. It's water-soluble, meaning ideally we need a little bit every day. But what we're seeing more and more is if people take it every other day, they still do fine. Okay. And with higher doses, maybe they could even get away with once a week and do fine. Again, the key is going to be to just get that level checked at some point to see if they're getting enough. Roger that. Okay, just a couple more left, and then uh, we will let you get out of here and back up to your important job upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. Um, it says, uh, this is from Lisa on Facebook. I'm looking for recommendations on lab tests to be done to check for inflammation. I'm whole food plant-based working on my husband who is a high protein and fat low carb eater. He's due for his annual physical and I know he will think he is healthy if he has the typical labs that come back with normal values. Thanks. Hope to hear back soon. What do you think? So I think, you know, what we know is that when we don't follow a healthy diet and lifestyle, inflammation increases in the body. Mm -hmm. And that inflammation can manifest itself in many ways, such as elevated blood sugars or cardiovascular disease or joint pain or high blood pressure or high cholesterol. Some things we can easily measure, some things we can. What's happening in our joints, we can't always measure. Uh, we can measure the blood sugar, the blood pressure, the cholesterol easily. And that's what I would recommend um, for her partner is to get those levels checked. 
check the blood pressure, check a fasting lipid panel, check an A1C, not just a blood sugar, but actually an A1C, because it's a much better indicator of how our blood sugar is doing for the past three months. Right. And it can pick up not only diabetes, but also prediabetes. Now, there are some tests, um, such as the CRP or ESR, that specifically measure inflammation. But by themselves, I don't feel they're helpful. They're usually measured to track disease progression or remission, such as if someone has rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. We will measure those and track and see how they're responding to treatment. But by themselves, if they come back elevated, they're not particularly helpful. Gotcha. So I would stick with things where intervention can help, such as the ones I mentioned. All right. Well, here's a very interesting question that I saved for last because this is something maybe you'll you'll talk about in your uh, weight loss program and research study. Um, this is really fascinating. This comes from Karen on Facebook. She writes, hi, Chuck. Thank you for all you do and for the terrific podcast. Karen, you flatter me. Thank you. Uh, my question, and this is a really good one. My question is how to get enough calories when going low fat. To stick to 10% fat, I have to cut out all nuts and seeds. And even with a lot of veggies, fruit and grains, I find it hard to get above 1,000 calories without them. Is it okay to go below 1,200 calories? Well, you know, Karen, that really depends on many things. It depends on your height. It depends on your weight. It depends on your BMI. It depends on how you feel. So if you're eating a 1,000-calorie diet and you're able to exercise regularly and take care of yourself and be productive in the way that's important to you and you're able to maintain a weight that's stable, maybe that's okay for you. But if, on the other hand, you're consuming a 1,000 calories and you're feeling tired and fatigued and you're not able to exercise or take care of yourself and you're feeling like you're dragging through your day, then maybe that's not the right amount of calories for you or if you're losing weight. So it's, it's not the number of calories I would focus on. I would focus on the person, how they're feeling, how their health is. And I would also like to say to Karen, to be 10%, to, you know, we recommend limiting our fat intake to 10% of calories. To do that, we don't have to avoid nuts and seeds completely. A little bit is acceptable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a tablespoon of peanut butter uh, or two a day is fine if your calories are already that low to begin with. Yeah. You don't have to be that strict with yeah. yourself. Yeah. It's more of an issue for people who are consuming a lot of calories and then we really try to focus on the high-fat foods. Right. I know smoothies can be kind of controversial, but I will tell you that just one tablespoon of peanut butter and, and like a, if you do a cacao powder with some bananas and almond milk and, and one tablespoon of, uh, of peanut butter, man, that peanut butter goes a long way. It does. Um, I did that last night. As a matter of fact, I did all that, and then I threw in uh, some kale and blueberries on top of it for a little extra nu nutrition punch. Um, it turned out great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I would just like to caution that – but for someone who's trying to control their diabetes or is actively trying to lose weight, for them, it'll be really important to watch that nut and seed sure, intake. Sure. But for someone like Karen who's struggling to get the calories in, doing what you suggested is perfectly fine and yeah. may be helpful, in yeah. fact. It's, you know, I think it's, like you said, it's a little bit different for everyone depending on what their mm -hmm. needs are. You know, yeah. what is their goal? Is Karen trying to lose weight right now or is she trying to stay, you know, steady? Right. You know, so um, it's a little bit different for everybody. So that 10%, you know, kind of do do the best that you can, you right. know, just There's don't don't go to the drive through for goodness sakes. <laughs> <laughs>
Definitely not. Dr. Raman, thank you very much. The plan is to do these mailbag segments pretty regularly, so get your questions in. If there's something on your mind, let us know, and hopefully we can get you an answer in the future. And the best way to send in those questions is just on social media. It couldn't be easier. I'm at Chuck Carroll WLC on both Twitter and Instagram, or you can just send me a message on Facebook. And we've posted links to all of those accounts in the episode notes for your convenience. So send in those questions. Let's get them in the mailbag and let's get you some answers the next time we open it up. But right now, Let's turn our attention to California, where a lawsuit has been filed that would force the state to include processed meats on its list of known carcinogens. The Physicians Committee filed this suit asking the court to make the state comply with a law that's already on the books, a law that requires it to maintain, quote, a list of chemicals known to the state to cause cancer or reproductive toxicity. So let's find out more about what this lawsuit would do, what the ramifications of it would be, and the grounds for which it was filed. And for that, we're going to turn to the man who helped craft this argument and filed it in court. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. And I have in my hand a press release with the headline, Doctors Group Sues California for Failing to Add Processed Meat to State Carcinogen List. And to talk all about this lawsuit is the Physicians Committee's Vice President for Legal Affairs, Mr. Mark Kennedy. Welcome to the show, Counselor. I'm glad to be here, Chuck. I'm, I'm glad to have you back. Uh, you are like the Perry Mason of the vegan world. So this is always exciting when, when you're on the exam room, man. I get pumped up for this. Yeah, I get that a lot. Do you? No. No, not at all. <laughs> this is the first time? All right. Well, look, you know, Lee Crosby upstairs is now known as the Fiber Queen. So now I, I think I you, will, you will be the Perry Mason of, right. of veganism. Um, Proposition 65, before we get into this lawsuit. I said at the top of the show that it's basically just a list of known carcinogens. Is that what this is out in California? It ends up being a list, uh, not just of carcinogens, but of chemicals known to cause reproductive harm. Okay. And, and this came out of a law, uh, a law that was passed by resolution. So the voters of the state of California said, this is a law we want to have to protect ourselves a few decades ago. And it's a public health law, safety code um, of California. And, yeah, it basically says that the California government is going to make a list of these bad chemicals. They're carcinogens, reproductive toxins. It's going to update that list at least once per year. But more often than that, it's, it's, it's kind of like a rolling update. And it's a list you can find on the government website. It's an agency called uh, – I just call it OEHA because I'm too busy to say Office of Environmental <laughs> Health Hazard <laughs> Assessment. Right. <laughs> but um, – that agency in California produces and maintains this list. And there is a glaring omission on this list, uh, processed meat. Is that the entire basis of this lawsuit? What, what are we seeking to do here? Yes. The law that creates the list, we, we call it Prop 65. It has a much longer name and I won't say it um, again because I'm simply too busy. <laughs> but it 
lists four ways by which a chemical is supposed to make it to that list. And one of them is in something called the Labor Code. And it basically says that anything that the World Health Organization's Institute – let's see. What, is, what does IARC stand for? That's another one. Uh, Tell me, Chuck. What it, does IARC stand for? It. Uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer. Right. Like I said, institute. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So IARC is an agency uh, that is an expert on carcinogens, and it has its own list. And when it classifies a carcinogen on its list, California is in turn supposed to say, oh, well, we need to add that to our list too. And that is something for processed meat that happened in October of 2015. Right. IARC came along. They brought 22 experts together. Those experts were from countries all over the world, and they looked at more than 800 studies on red and processed meat, and they were looking at what links there are f- between consuming those things and developing cancer. Uh, we, we've heard a lot about – you may be confused. You, we've heard a lot about the World Health Organization has classified processed meat as a class 1 carcinogen. IARC, it is my understanding, is part that of is the WHO. Right. And I should have said that. Right. And that's right. And so when they made this announcement in late 2015, they said processed meat is a group 1 carcinogen. So that's the highest evidentiary listing. Mm-hmm. And there are lower categories like probably carcinogenic. But we're talking about carcinogenic, period. To humans, and um, that should trigger the listing in California. So it's been almost five years, and California has taken no action. What's the holdup? Well, it's an interesting problem. What they've said initially, they said that they needed more information because IARC has two mechanisms by which it lists things. It has a list, and then it has a very detailed thing called a monograph. And for each of the items on its list, it does eventually publish this detailed monograph. But either the listing itself or the publication of the monograph should trigger action in California. But what the agency said in California is that they couldn't rely on just the list alone because processed meat was too broad or nebulous of a category. They needed a definition. Mm. And for that, they said they were waiting for this monograph. And that is not a lawful response. The law is absolutely clear in California that once IARC makes this designation, California must in turn list that as a carcinogen. Gotcha. But nevertheless, the California agency, OEHA, uh, stuck to its guns and waited for the monograph. But the monograph came in 2018, and they've still done nothing. So they waited two and a half years for the monograph, which they said they really needed to read. And they've been reading, I don't know, half a page, a few paragraphs a day for the past two (laughs) years. Uh, We haven't seen anything from the agency. So uh, just to be clear on this monograph, does it list those specific meats? Is that what they were looking for? Like hot dogs cause cancer, bacon causes cancer, deli meat causes cancer? They did seem to want boundaries that were that specific. But uh, the monograph is more than 500 pages long. It's – yeah. It's like an encyclopedia. And you can read it and fall asleep. And and maybe that's what happened over in California. Maybe they fell asleep reading. (laughs) It's a long document because it covers so many studies, more than 800 studies. And it goes into great detail. And what they've said is that they just – they can't figure it out. What we know – and this is part of the press release. I'll just read this off. Uh, Part of the press release says that uh, when the WHO or IARC – 
uh, announced that uh, processed meat was carcinogenic in 2015. Uh, they highlighted a meta-analysis that concluded that each 50-gram portion of processed meat, which is roughly one hot dog, eaten daily increases the risk of colorectal cancer by 18%. Further, research shows that eating 50 grams of processed meat daily also increases the risk of breast cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, and overall cancer mortality. That's a whole heck of a lot of cancer. It is. And you know, I mean, so the theme here is processed meat is bad for you. But in terms of why IARC classified it as group one carcinogen, it was really on the link to colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's enough. You know, you, you can have one reason or you can have four. But I mean, you've probably heard and I think we've discussed on the show that colorectal cancer rates are on the rise, unlike many other forms of cancer, um, especially uh, among young people. You know, yeah. if, if you're a young person today, you have twice the chance of having a colorectal cancer that somebody from the 50s, born in the 50s did. Sure. And that's because our diets are are just going crazy, you know, bacon on everything, a bacon cupcake, a bacon bagel, I don't know, putting bacon on everything (laughs) is this trend and it's it's really hurting young people. Any coincidence that this lawsuit was filed in Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month? It is not a coincidence. Uh, You know, we have only so much patience and it took... (laughs) We, we waited, you know, and we met with this agency and we sent letters and we petitioned. And when we finally talked to them in person in October, they said, we'll have something by January. Mm-hmm. And January has come and gone. And we gave them a little bit of breathing room. And then October came around. And like you said, it's, it's the right month for raising awareness about colorectal cancer via a lawsuit like this. And, you know, the lawsuit is here to just tell the state of California to do its job and protect people. Are we expecting pushback on this, or what? What is your gut telling you? I know stay it's, away it's from, hard. It's hard to speculate. Stay away from processed meat is yeah. what my gut is telling me. But uh, I think you know that we when we've met with the agency, they admitted they recognize they have this duty to take some action, and they haven't. And there are cases, and we cite them in the complaint. Longstanding case law in California it makes it clear that the agency doesn't really have any wiggle room. It doesn't have the wiggle room to wait for the publication of the monograph once the listing occurs, and it doesn't have the wiggle room to wait indefinitely once the listing or the monograph is on the books. So right. they need to take action, and if, if this case is what prompts them to do that, that's fine, and it, and it will. Well, here's the thing about this, this list. I'm going to pull it up. I have it on – uh, my cell phone. I pulled it up right before we got going on it. And I may have mentioned this also at the top of the show. This list isn't just, you know, random chemicals and toxins, a lot of them that you haven't heard of. I mean, there are, you know, some some everyday things on here, like right on the first page is alcoholic beverages is listed on Prop 65. Everybody right. knows about that. Right. Asbestos on here. Everybody knows about asbestos. Anabolic steroids. Clearly, I'm in the A's, but everybody knows about them as well. It's not like we're talking about Alicor or aflatoxin or antisiming D, you know, not random right. things. We're talking about every everyday type of substances. Why then wouldn't processed meat be on there? Right. And, and there are other ones, tobacco, smoke, and different kinds of ash and smoke. Very obvious things that people understand are bad for you. And this is on the – it should be on the list too because it falls into the same category. It has this connection scientifically shown – between consumption or exposure, however you want to term it, and uh, developing cancer. Do we think that there might be some meat industry dollars that are behind the delay? Sure. And what's interesting is that we submitted a 
re, you know, public information requests, sort of like FOIA, the, just like FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, except at the state level in California. And we said to the agency, well, tell us, you know, turn over all the documents showing what you've been up to relating to this, your decision-making process, any meetings you've had, any communications you've made with the public. And what we saw, unsurprisingly, was that the agency had twice met with the meat industry. Mm-hmm lobbyists and um, industry associations. And in one of those meetings, the chief counsel for this agency, OEHA, had talked about one of the prior court cases that had gone against the agency and made it absolutely clear that it's binding on them by law to add to their list a carcinogen deemed such by IARC. Right. So they're sitting there in this meeting with industry, and this is – several years ago and they know what they're supposed to do and for whatever reason they didn't we don't have much else related to that meeting we just have kind of a not even an agenda but just a listing showing that the meeting occurred and the names of the people who were there and then this subsequent communication in which the the uh the chief counsel sent to the the lobbyists this court case so it's really interesting they knew all along and they told the meat industry at the time they knew they had to do this but they didn't Mm. do anything. Mm. And of course, they didn't expect us to eventually get a copy of that communication. But, you know, it gives the appearance that they talked about some sort of plan to delay as long as possible. For sure. And it has been almost five years at this point. The people in charge of keeping up with this list, updating it at least annually, as you said, uh, are, are these elected positions, appointed positions? What do we know about that? I don't think they're elected positions. They are, I believe, appointed positions or just straight governmental hires. The director of the agency has been there since its founding around the time of the creation of this law. Mm -hmm. So these are people who focus a lot of their time and probably their whole careers on administering this law. And perhaps they have a stake this time in keeping processed meat out. Maybe it's, it's unclear, you know. (laughs) <laughs> it's unclear except that they have said that it's a complicated substance to add. But if you – you know, you have the list in front of you, Chuck. You can see there are other ones. There's one in there for salted fish. Yeah. You know, I mean these aren't complicated. There are the very complicated chemicals like you said, but then there are other very simple ones. There are very clear food categories. This is one of them. You might not know the answer to this, but do you know of anything else that was kind of met with this uh, – or at least had the appearance of resistance and and took them so long to add it to the list? We haven't seen that. In fact, what we have seen is, and I mentioned earlier that IARC has lower classification. So group one is kind of the highest evidentiary standard. There's a a group two, a 2A, something like that. But what we have seen is that for some of the other chemicals, the California agency acted very quickly – and not only for group one, but for group two, you know, and, and they didn't wait for the monograph. They mm. just cranked out the list. You know, mm-hmm. they, they updated their list when IARC updated its list. So it seems that there is something about this listing. And we know the industry has been very interested because in addition to these meetings I mentioned, there was an article around the time of the listing that mentioned some industry interest in keeping this off the list as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Possibility of federal preemption was raised because the federal government administers um, the Fresh Meat Inspection Act, which is the law that applies to um, 
inspections and labeling of meat products. Right. And somebody was making the novel argument that by putting the carcinogen on the list in California and requiring establishments – this is what the list does. We didn't really get into this. But the list is there to tell people who run establishments. And that's a defined word in the law and it covers things like restaurants, stores, uh, gas stations, any place a consumer might walk in and be right. exposed to these things. And when they have in their space or premises um, this – Substance, whatever the listed substance is, they just have to post a warning that tells consumers, you know, this thing is here. And they can get very specific they, if they would like. And some restaurants will list things like acrylamide, which is like a fast food chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it comes up in the, the cooking process at fast food restaurants. Or they can be extremely general. And the California law creates what's called the safe harbor warning. And it is very vague. It's it's one sentence that just says something about like uh, what I'm about to say, something around the lines of – along the lines of chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer or reproductive harm are present on the premises. That's it. So it's just a sign you put on your wall. doesn't say at all what that substance would right. be. Right. And yet the meat industry is saying that a law that applies at the federal level to inspections and to labels on the package mm-hmm. that you see in the store would prohibit – a California law that says list this as a carcinogen because it is one and then post a warning on the wall of your establishment, not the package, mm. the wall. Anyway, it's um, you know, the specter of scary consequences and it is something that is on the agency's mind because they did mention preemption even when we spoke with them in the fall. So uh, kind of what you're alluding to sounds a little bit like the, the California cosmetics bill, which went through, I believe, last year or the year before that said that no cosmetics that have been tested on animals could be sold in stores in California. Well, of course, that's going to have repercussions in the other 49 states because of just the size, the enormity of California's economy. So kind of along those same lines, it sounds like if this gets through here – Uh, If the lawsuit is successful, if processed meat is added to that list, then other states might follow suit. And that's kind of what the meat industry is a little afraid of. Sure. California is always a leader, always a leader in environmental issues, always a leader in public health issues. And it's a big state. So what happens in California affects a lot of the rest of the country. And to have a state government say on the record that this – is a carcinogen. Processed meat is a carcinogen, something that every scientist knows. Mm -hmm. And many average Americans know, of course, you know, no one has ever said, bake, you know, a slice of bacon a day keeps a doctor away. It's always, you know, an apple a day. It's, It's always eat more fruits and veggies. No one has ever said these things are good for you. Because they're not. (laughs) And it's not just the cholesterol and the fat and whatever else is in there. Now we know it's a carcinogen too. You know, we're talking bacon, deli meats, salami, whatever, yeah, um, pepperoni right. on your pizza, any of these things that are in the processed meat category are in this carcinogen group that might cause colorectal cancer. So uh, real quick as we kind of wrap up here, walk us through the legal process. So now the suit's been filed. What are the next steps? The judge will schedule uh, – some. well – it kind of depends on the judge, but often there's a scheduling conference. The parties get together and they talk about um, the general schedule of the case. But what usually ends up happening is that the party who is sued, in this case the California government, 
will file something like a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. And these are just ways to say to the court, no, you know, this is not warranted. This, this lawsuit is groundless. I don't know how they could do that mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. What they could try to do is say, well, it's moot. And they could moot it by actually taking action. You know, the, the agency could tomorrow go ahead and list Prop 65 and then there'd be nothing to complain about to the judge. Right. And that would be, that'd be a great result. Right. Um, it would be a long delay and sort of a waste of time. We should have been doing this now in 2020. It should have happened in 2015. But that could happen. And we, we do see that sometimes in our federal lawsuits, that the action that we've been complaining about and that no one has been taking action on finally comes when the lawsuit is there because when a judge tells you to do it, you have to do it. Right. And no one wants that. So sometimes right. they just do it real fast. Um, and because there has been this five-year delay at this point, nearly five-year delay, um, are we expecting them to be – the state uh, to move swiftly in filing their motions or are you expecting something to be a little bit more drawn out? I don't think we'll see anything drawn out because we cited the case law in the complaint. And they know it because they shared it with the meat industry. Everybody knows what has to happen here. Now, they might say – and this is something agencies do. They say, well, judge, we're working on it. We we really are. We promise. You know, could we get a stay? You know, can we – can you just give us six more months or three more months or whatever it is? And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something like that. They have been telling us – and this is in the lawsuit – but – as I said earlier, we've been meeting with them on and off and corresponding with them since 2017. And every single time, you know, first it was let's wait for the monograph. And then when the monograph came, they said, well, we're going to read the monograph. And then about a year passed and they said, well, we're almost there, just a few months. And then later on that in 2019, it was just, well, two more months. And then at some point it was a few weeks. And then when we met with them in person, it was by January. And all those things have passed. So you get the sense that they think they're working on it or they want us to think they are. But um, we'll find out for sure now. Right. Well, clock hit zero. Yeah. Um, the last question I have for you. So suppose this goes through um, as, as hopefully it will. Uh, are we expecting it simply to be filed under P for process meat or will ham be listed individually? bacon individually now this this will just be a process meat listing and that's that's right i mean that's what iarc said and that's what its research was on um, these 800 studies that the 22 experts from 10 countries looked at so it would be um, the designation in the iarc list was actually processed meat parenthesis parentheses consumption of so you know if you're using processed meat for arts and crafts purposes, uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem to rise to Thanks the level. Thanks for the clarification, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's it's about consumption. So, and it's a broad category of processed meat, and it, and I think um, it will stay that way. Yeah. Here, mom and dad, I made you a collage out of salami. That's right. No problem. Uh, all right. Anything else you think that we should know uh, before we kind of take this home? Or are there any nuances to this case that we haven't touched on? I know that we're actually not the only people named uh, or involved in this suit, right? That's There's true. there are physicians out there who are behind us with right, this as well. Right. Some, you know, our California membership is strong, and there are a lot of people in California who care about this issue. And so we do have two individual plaintiffs. One is a 
family medicine doctor with 45 years of clinical experience, and he is an expert on public health and lifestyle medicine. And then another is a dietitian who was instrumental in getting processed meat removed from her own hospital off the patient and restaurant menus there because, of course, a hospital should not be serving processed meat, a carcinogen to its patients. Makes sense to me. Right. So we have some people who are experts on this and, um, you know, whether they were experts or not, you know, the people of California spoke when they passed this law and they said carcinogen is a carcinogen and we need to know. And, you know, you don't have to take sides because it's bacon or pepperoni. It's a carcinogen. Right, right. Uh, and, and that makes sense to me, too. I would think that this would have a, a pretty big trickle-down effect to establishments such as hospitals. You know, I think that it would be – they would be harder-pressed to continue to serve processed meat than in the hospital if it is on this list of known carcinogens, if it's on this list. Like, come on, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange choice already. Right. I mean, even if we didn't know it was a carcinogen, we know it has all these other problems. I mean, if you want people to be healthy, if you want people to recover from whatever put them in the hospital, the last thing you do is give them something that will keep them there longer. Yeah. Um, So this law would alert the public. You know, it's another way of teaching. It's It's a form of public education, but at heart, the law is a safety and public health statute. All right. Well, here's what I want to do. Uh, Time to time, I just want to check in with you periodically, see where things stand with the legal process, see how quickly we can get the wheels of justice to turn on this thing. So we'll we'll keep the exam room listeners uh, updated on that. But uh, in the meantime, uh, this suit has just been filed and we're we're playing the watch game at the moment. All right. Keep you updated. You demand. Mark Kennedy, Vice President of Legal Affairs here at the Physicians Committee. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to see everything that's already on California's list of carcinogens, we've posted a link to the Prop 65 page in the episode notes below. And again, we're not talking about wild chemicals that you've never heard of. We're talking about things that most of us are very well aware of. We're talking about asbestos and tobacco and anabolic steroids and even alcohol. All of those things, plus hundreds of others, are on this list. So then why aren't things like hot dogs and ham and bacon on that list too, since they're classified by the WHO as being carcinogenic? Lots of coverage on this already in the media. So clearly a lot of people are wondering the same thing. We will be doing our best to keep you updated on the lawsuit's progress as it winds its way through the courts. So keep tuned to the exam room and we will keep you updated. And man, we've covered a lot of ground on the show today, haven't we? We got to a ton of your questions, all of them good. So please keep those questions coming and then hopefully we can have the doctor answer it for you the next time. We open up the mailbag. We want to make sure that this mailbag is stuffed. We want to make sure that it's overflowing, busting at the seams. So send those questions to me on Twitter or Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Or you could find me on Facebook and send me some questions there. And we will do our very best to get you some answers. 
And while you're at it, you can also follow the Physicians Committee at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. Tons of great tips and tricks about keeping healthy on there, plus breaking news from the medical world and a lot of inspiration to kind of pick you up and make you feel good. So go ahead and give them a follow as well. Now then, one final question to ask before we wrap things up. And that question is, how can I help somebody get healthy and learn about plant-based diets? It's a question that we actually hear a lot. It's an amazing question, and it's even more amazing that you guys want to pitch in. And one of the easiest ways you can do that is just to subscribe to The Exam Room on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever shows are available. And then also leave a five-star rating and a nice review, because when you do that, That helps even more people discover the exam room and all of the nutrition education that comes with it. The way it works is the more subscriptions and five-star ratings we have, the higher we climb in Apple podcast ratings. And the higher we climb, the more people will discover the show. So let's see if we can help them do just that. Let's see if we can help others transform their lives as well. So mash that subscribe button, and I promise you, it goes a long way toward helping the next person lead a healthier life. And real quick, I need you to mark your calendars for May 8th and 9th. In Washington, D.C., there is another opportunity to pay it forward. We've got the Kickstart Intensive coming to the Grand Hyatt. This is a two-day immersion into all things plant-based. We're talking about cooking demos and how it can help you lose weight and keep it off and diabetes, overcoming food addictions, and so much more. We've got more than 15 speakers presenting some groundbreaking science and sharing their testimonials. I'm also going to be speaking there. So we're going to get you inspired, we're going to get you educated, and then we're going to get you fed as well. And I'm talking about some delicious meals. We're going to get you set up with breakfast and lunch both days. All of it quite, quite tasty, if I do say so myself. So this is Friday and Saturday, May 8th and 9th at the Grand Hyatt, Washington. But hurry up, here it is, if you would like to sign up. Early bird discounted rates are available through March 13th. And if you sign up before then, you can save $60 off of the regular price. It's an incredible deal, $60 off. And we've posted a link to register right now in the episode notes below. I certainly hope to see you there. And that's going to do it for us today. My thanks again to Dr. Vanita Raman for fielding so many of your wonderful questions and to Mark Kennedy for shedding some light on an important lawsuit. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.